This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Designers are constantly discovering beautiful objects and materials for their clients, searching and editing, refining and sourcing. And when clients choose the best options, it can be eminently rewarding. But what about all the lovely items that aren't quite right or that clients reject? With designers exposed to so many wonders, it's not surprising that many of them are tempted to expand their market and open a store or showroom. But retail has never been easy and is even more difficult now that internet sales have boomed, challenging brick-and-mortar shops. Is running a shop or showroom still a good idea? Does it help or hinder a designer's career? I have with me today three designers who have made retail work for them, here to talk about the risks and rewards of opening an establishment. First up is Meg Braff, who is known for her contemporary version of traditional decorating, colorful, fun, and family-friendly, but always incorporating fine antiques and luxurious materials. In addition to designing graphic and colorful wallpapers, fabrics, and lighting, much of it inspired by Palm Beach style, she oversees two shops, her original outpost in Locust Valley on Long Island and a second in Palm Beach, which opened just a few months ago. Welcome, Meg. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. We also have Patrick Millet, a designer whose bold yet refined take on classicism has won him acclaim and a place on the AD100 list. In addition to crafting interiors in New York, Connecticut, and London, he also oversees a jewel box of a store in Greenwich, Connecticut, his hometown, that is crammed with colorful furnishings, antiques, artisan creations, and Luke's accessories. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Michael. Finally, we have Boston-based designer Eric Haydell, who marries a love of history developed growing up in Louisiana with a passion for vivid colors and East Coast preppy style, crafting interiors that are exuberant and fanciful. He also designs rugs, fabrics, furniture, and wallpaper, and he serves as president, creative director, and part owner of the M. Giao showroom in the Boston Design Center, which features distinguished to the trade lines, including A. Rudin, Julian Chichester, Christopher Swiss Miller, and Jasper, as well as its own designs. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Michael. Glad to be here. So, Meg, I want to start with you, because I think you probably, your store in Locust Valley has been open for quite a number of years, so I'd love to get a sense of what prompted you, and then I'm assuming that it's been a success because you just opened a second one in Palm Beach. (laughs) So thank you. I opened my store about 15 years ago in Locust Valley. And I, it was a combination of, I was moving my family out of the city. I had also just purchased all the archives from the Philip Graff collections. I really didn't have anywhere to put them. I was trying to reorganize my whole life. So it made a lot of sense to have a place to hang my hat. I needed an office in Locust Valley. And I wish I had done it earlier, actually. I remember my bookkeeper and my husband were both like, I can't believe you want to have a retail store. What a silly idea. But it's given me a lot of joy, and I've really enjoyed it. That's great. And Patrick, what about your store? How many years has it been open, and what prompted you? I know, I think your mother worked with you for a while in this store. I don't know if that's still the case. It's definitely still the case. Great. What prompted me to open up the shop was the opening a shop was always a goal of mine. I grew up in a retail family, in a restaurant hospitality family, and my mother had a career in retail, in children's clothing for a while. I grew up surrounded 
and in love with talking to a public and engaging an audience and loving that, building those relationships like within a small community. Greenwich isn't too small, but so I had training sort of in that. And then I began my career working with Kate and Andy Spade when they were operating their company and they were great friends, mentors, great influences on me. And from there, I went on to work with Ralph Lauren and Richard Lambertson, a number of different people who had just a huge, wide-ranging influence. And I still think that it's important for designers and creatives to create an environment where their public can come in and kind of get an understanding of what they're all about. So that was always something that was at the forefront of my plans. And the shop will be celebrating five years in Greenwich. So that's exciting. And then... Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. And I kept it a little bit under wraps, but I have just opened up my second store as well. I haven't Instagrammed it or anything just because I've been trying to catch up with actually doing it. And that's in the front of my design studio where I'm now living and operating in Connecticut in Bridgeport in the Black Rock kind of harbor area of Bridgeport. So So you're taking over Connecticut. Slowly but surely. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's good. No, no, hardly. But um, I'm I'm enjoying it and it's going well. Fantastic. Now, I mean, both of you have talked about having a place that would show your aesthetic and your taste. And, And Eric, you're in a slightly different situation because yours is a to the trade showroom. So how did that happen? And how does it influence your own work? And like when designers come in and shop your showroom, I'm sure they look at your own designs. Does it ever break your heart when they pass right over you and go to Jasper or something else? I mean, how does that work in terms of your <laughs> your design career? Well, it's like any relationship. It's complicated. Um, <laughs> I, I had I had no interest in actually having a physical location. So unlike maybe Patrick, who sort of grew up in that and Meg had a vision for it, I did not. It sort of found me, I like to say. I had gotten a product design a few years back and where are you going to show your product? So it sort of happened to be a pop-up scenario in the design center. And then a, a mutual friend and colleague said, you know, hey, maybe you should do the showroom life. And the McGill company has been in business for a significant amount of years and they want to retire. So why don't you do that? And one conversation became 10 conversations became now we are five years later and celebrating our 70th anniversary in business and with a whole new leader and leadership and and direction forward. But yes, my voice as a designer has been lost a little bit. And to be honest, that's sort of been what I have taken under my wrestling over this summer. How will my voice be able to stand to not be looked over when I can't compete with the likes of Michael Smith and the Jasper collection? And I don't want to. I want to compliment it. I'll never be able to develop the greats that uh, a Rudin have. And I don't want to, I want to compliment it. So my quest really is I'm going to actually look to my other two colleagues on this phone and see how they did it and utilize a little bit of that reflection in my adventure that's upcoming in the next few months to find my voice in this larger showroom. Right. Because yours is not an understated voice there. Oh, by no means. (laughs) (laughs) So if you feel it's being overshadowed a bit, then I, there's a, well, you have a great lineup of brands and names in your showroom. So I imagine one of the things you want to do in a showroom or a shop is offer variety. But of course, I'm sure you will like want to steer 
people towards what you really love. So Meg, how does that work for you? Do you feel that having a shop has helped bring you design clients? Have people come into your shop and say, I love everything you do. Can you help me with my home? Is, is that Has that it is, worked? Or? It has definitely happened many, many times over the years. We tend to, we tend to not actually take on that work. Mm-hmm. I don't want to. Well, at this point, you're so well established and known that you don't need, I'm not, right. I don't mean to imply you need people walking right, off the street. Right, right. But I think even 12 years ago, I don't know. Personally, I've sort of found that the more like serious clients, the ones that you really want to have for your whole career are not the ones mm-hmm. who walk into your store and say, I just bought a new house in town. Can you help me with this? So I, I could, I mean, I could be wrong, <laughs> but, but we do, what, what happens is we do try to give them a lot of personal attention when we have so many great local customers who come in and we're kind of a great go-to in the Locust Valley area for just everything from custom lampshades to vintage lighting. We have really good turnover. So if you come into the store once a month, you're going to see a lot of new things and a lot of it never even hits our website. But I think, Eric, to your point, you're curating your space. And so even though you're carrying other brands there, you've curated it. It's, they're all things that you like that you would approve to put on your projects. And so I think people will appreciate the fact that you've done that and that you've made it easier for them to make choices by having that all together. I was lucky when I purchased the archives to five different companies 15 years ago, and I've spent the last 15 years recoloring, changing the grounds, kind of trying to make it a more cohesive collection, but I could never have created that kind of depth of a collection if I had to start with the artwork myself. So it was, it was very fresh to like my generation. My mother-in-law remembered Philip Graff from being at the D&D building and I think he had a location in London. And so it was kind of great that there was a certain number of like the old school decorators that remembered his patterns. And I was fortunate enough to be able to sort of look at them with a fresh eye and sort of make it what I kind of thought it should be for now. And you recognize that it was something that you could refresh and bring to a new audience, which is important, which is important. Now, Patrick, what about, like I worked in retail a couple of times in my checkered career, and I know it's a lot of work. Dealing with the public is not easy. Stocking, keeping track of things. So <laughs> I'd love to get a sense from you how much, how do you find things for your store? Artisans, do you go to trade shows? Do you travel? How do you keep your stock fresh, so to speak, and keep sure. things interesting? Sure. So in the beginning, the way we started, it wasn't on paper. You know, there was no map to sort of, this is when it's going to be, this is where it's going to be, this is how it will be, etc. I found a location that I could afford miraculously in Greenwich and knew that the space was the right size and the right, the right everything. So I started to call on friends who I thought would do well in the Greenwich market, you know, having grown up in the Greenwich market, studying it through my young adulthood and seeing what was missing and noticing the subtle but pretty important changes of demographic that were happening around us. I knew that some of these brands, such as friends of mine, Creel and Gao, for instance, Jamie Creel was hugely supportive of me from the moment I talked to him over dinner. And same with John Darian. And Wayne Pate is an artist who we built a really lovely relationship with together. I never knew Wayne, but followed his career on Instagram and reached out to him and said, you don't know me, but here's who I am and here's what I've done a bit. And would you be willing to meet me? 
And there was a lot of that in the beginning because I certainly didn't have a pot of resources to really put a shop together in the way that it typically would happen. So I cleared out my garage, basically, and told my mother that she was <laughs> didn't tell, but uh, she said, okay. Gently suggested. Gently suggested that I'm going to really need help. And she left her job, excitedly so, and we embarked on this kind of journey together for the shop. Prior to that, I launched my design firm 12 years ago, 2011. So she had been running that with me, Pat. So we, we, it was very organic in the beginning. I knew the people who I admired and filled up the shop as much as possible with pieces that were sort of led to me on consignment, and we were pretty successful. John Darian came up and gave a book signing, which was a huge deal. It was packed, and people couldn't believe John Darian came to town. And that was I know a huge, Dakota's you know, such and, a poor rural area, you know, underserved. <laughs> no, but, you know, yeah, exactly. Greenwich. But, uh, wow. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, John, you know, John doesn't go out and do that many book no, signings. he's so, very uh, quiet was, and shy, actually, John. Yes, it was, it was a big deal. And yeah, um, so that kind of a thing to begin with. And mm-hmm. then uh, we built a slow and steady and really wonderful clientele. We were fortunate enough to get some press, House Beautiful, and Architectural Digest, and local people, Connecticut Magazine, Cottages and Gardens, etc. They all supported us and put us on lists. And because we are off the beaten track in Greenwich, we are not on Greenwich Avenue or in some the chicest part of town. So it's been an interesting journey. And then, of course, COVID hits and et cetera, et cetera. But we're, yeah. we're doing quite well. People come back. We have repeat clients. I, we have clients who drive up from New York and all over. I shipped out, I think, the first season. We shipped a pair of lamps to Israel. So I thought, all right, this is pretty – this is That's good. good. The word well. was getting out. Yeah, That's yeah. Great. Yeah, so that whole now, thing. Eric, obviously it was a little bit different from you. But when you took over Miguel, did you have to like – revamp the lineup, edit the lineup? Was it something that you felt needed your fresh eye? Because also in Boston, the demographics have changed a lot over the past 10 years. Immensely. We've always been known as a brown furniture company. We first represented Kittinger back in 1951 and had it until the late 1990s when it went out of business. So I remember sitting down with my still business partners, Jim and Susan McGeo, and I said to them, we have 300 dining chairs on the floor. You have to get rid of at least 150 of them. Well, I'm not going to come to work here. So it is a little different because uh, the curation from our part is, of course, every manufacturer wants every single thing they put out on the floor. But that can't happen, right? At the end of the day, we had 10,000 square feet. Most recently, we rebuilt a new showroom. It was huge. And it was too much to manage. So last October, right. we moved into a new showroom at half the square footage in the Boston Design Center. And we put everything that really matters on the floor and everything that the clients come to and ask for, looking in that changing demographic. You know, Boston was heavy jabot and swag and mauve and gold and everything American Revolution, right? For a long mm-hmm. time. And now everything is clean, sleek, modern, sexy, metal. It's where everyone's already been for 15 years. We're just starting to get into that mode. So it is a little amusing to start to recurate and to redevelop that look while still having a little bit of my, what I call New England sensibilities that I've had to develop being here. Mm-hmm. 
Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. I'd love to get a sense from each of you. Like, we'll start with you, Mick. Everybody talks about work-life balance. How do you do work-life shop balance? Well, this was my first year, well, my second year be living in Palm Beach. So I mm-hmm. was working there about a year and a half before I opened my shop. It took us about 18 months to renovate the store. And we finally opened in March. So I really spent- I, I know, it was good. It was really good. I really did not make it to New York much at all this year to the shop in Locust Valley, but I have really great people there. And every couple of days they would send me pictures of like what the store looks like, what's arrived, what's left. We do a daily email every day that details, you know, what shipper picked up what item for Cherish or for a a store customer. So I think everyone feels in the conversation and that's kind of how we've managed it throughout COVID because there was a lot of remote work for many of us in my office. And I think it's worked out okay. So anyway, I'm back now well, and I'll be in Locust Valley a good bit this summer. So right, catch right. up. But also you had a great team, which is crucial. Great team. Yes. Yeah. And Patrick, what about you? Can you trust your mother? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Can she trust me? Can I trust her? Um, it's, it's the start. It's a movie script, right, Michael? <laughs> I can entrust my mother with, uh, I wouldn't have been able to do any of it without my mother. So she is like a partner in my business. And uh, so my father, who I rarely talk about, but taught me a lot of what I know, has been there as well from the beginning. He's not out there with me. He's working and doing his own thing, but he is he has been a part of it. Many, many friends in this industry and, you know, related businesses have came around me and supported me and believed in me. And so, yes, I have an incredible team of people. Now I've been fortunate enough to work with a colleague now who is a contemporary of mine, who has a background in private equity and has just a whole deck of skills that I lack. And she has been incredible. Stephanie Van Hassel. And so, yeah, slowly but surely, I've built, there are other people whose names I didn't mention, but yeah, I agree with Meg without a team of people. And it's hard, right, Meg? And right, everybody there. Yeah, to build that team and to, you know, I had the first experience in my career bringing somebody on that wasn't the right fit after a year. Plus, and it happens to us you know, all. Patrick. I'm such an emotional guy. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Right. And it's, it's interesting to learn all of it and right. to move through it and get to the other side of it. Yeah. And yeah. Eric, what about you? How big a staff do you have? And what percentage of your time would you say is devoted to the showroom as opposed to your design practice? Yeah. So we are showroom staff of seven. And I have a design staff of zero at this point, for better or worse. In 2019, I needed sort of a pause. And so I sort of made the decision that I would focus more on showroom and not so much on design practice. I like to think it was a cool premonition to know what was coming just a Mm. few short months after that. Yeah, you were prescient. Yeah, definitely. I was right on the cusp of it. I had gone home to New Orleans to celebrate Mardi Gras with my family and came back to COVID. So uh, I sort of came back to a showroom that had to be revamped. But 
All in all, I think that my split is probably 70-30, so 70% showroom business and 30% design. And in that 30% is a little bit of my own product design. We're getting ready. Mm -hmm. Actually, next week, I mentioned to you guys an email. Next week, I'll be John Rosselli with the new wallpaper collection with Waterhouse. So if you guys are there, I'd love to see you. Awesome. Um, That's great. So, I mean, it's an exciting adventure, but so much of it really goes back to managing the relationships of those 50 manufacturers that have to come first. And at the end of the day, they want to come first, right? I'm a showroom creative director and, and president first, and I'm a designer second these days. And so some weeks it's 100% showroom and I don't get to do any design and creativity. And then sometimes I have to carve out time and say, today I'm going to work from home and client 36 out of Michigan needs me to be there. And so I'm there for three days to sort of immerse myself like I was just a few weeks ago. So finding that balance is a struggle when you have so many people pulling at you on so many different levels. And I'm, I'm sure my colleagues would agree with that. But then imagine now that I also am responsible to them and their clients on top of it. So it's definitely a whole different ballgame and learning to balance. I'm very, very blessed with a really capable team that are all very incredibly talented in their own right. And so I can sort of go on those little immersion trips to go work with my clients and focused on product and focus on social media or things that need to because they can sort of step in and take over. Um, They're all very seasoned. Most of them have been in the business for anywhere from 20 to 30, 35 years. So very seasoned team. Now, Meg, I want to ask you, because again, when you're doing an install for a client, I don't know how many you do a year, maybe, Mm -hmm. I don't know, 20. (laughs) I don't know. But with a store, you're basically doing 52 to 60 (laughs) installs a year. I mean, you're doing every week, every day. So how do you keep it fresh? How do you find new sources, new artisans? Oh my goodness. We are always shopping. We're always looking. I mean, we love having things made. We love having vintage pieces. We have a good, a good sprinkling of antiques because Mm -hmm. I really love using pieces that have a little patina on my project. So I always have a good selection of those, if nothing else for myself. Right. But I think I have two new people in the shop in Palm Beach and both of them had some experience in retail really doing that. And it's actually been interesting. It's a very different experience, I think, going to the shop in Palm Beach than the shop in Locust Valley. I think they're very engaging and they spend a lot of time just sort of trying to make the shop look really fantastic. So we've just never had that luxury to do that in Locust Valley. It's a smaller store and I don't know. But it's a very charming store. It's a very charming store. It's a very charming store. Very charming store. But it's been an interesting experience because they're both super professional. One of them came from Asprey's and she's just terrific. And the other one is Emily's just this darling, young, very motivated gal who really loves her job. So she's super enthusiastic. I'm very lucky. That's great. Now, one of the things I admire about all of you is in this age of the internet in Manhattan, there's so much empty retail spaces, so many empty stores, former stores. People don't know what to do with them. And retail has been heavily challenged first by the internet and second by COVID. But you guys have managed to move ahead. And I'd love to get a sense of, first, I'd love to know also how much you sell via your websites or via Instagram, which is, of course, has become a huge sales tool. And also why you still feel it's important that you have a shop. Patrick, why don't we start with you? Okay. Well, I can answer that pretty easily. We don't yet have a website, if you can believe it or not, in 2022. Oh my God, that is so old-fashioned. I'm an old-fashioned kind of guy. (laughs) 
we don't have a website for a number of different reasons. I have not, frankly, had the time to put it together in the way that I want to put it together and know that it has to be. I'm balancing a roster of clients throughout the country now, actually, you know, not not a crazy amount, but a good mm-hmm. amount. They're in-depth projects, and I have to answer to those projects on a daily basis. So that has taken a good chunk of my time. I have balanced it. Sales, people come in that door, thank goodness, and they make trips, and they come in on weekends, and they make plans to come and visit us. COVID, I think we opened the doors, and it was a real relief for people to come and visit and say hello and feel distracted for a moment from their own realities. And so the plan now for me, for us, is to go through this summer with our second location. It's going to be called the Black Rock Department Store, which was a throwback to a shop. I don't know if it was under that name, but I'm in a former furniture shop on the main street in Black Rock. And it's a 1940s, 50s, Looks like you might have seen like Pontiacs in the front window. It's like a car dealership. It's got mm-hmm. a cool look. It's got a great, great. look. It's next to a music venue and restaurants. And so there's a good energy here. But when I moved here, I knew right away that there was an opportunity for a retail to kind of be a great kind of anchor spot for this town and the surrounding towns. You know, we're next to Fairfield and 10 minutes from Westport. And it's about a half hour north of Greenwich. I'm very Right across from Locust Valley. Yes. Um, so you can take the, <laughs> the, sound, take the ferry across. and have a sandwich and you can go see both of the shops. Um, <laughs> make a weekend out of it. So the shop here, I love that name because it basically explains what I want to do, which is to have a retail business that encompasses the categories of lifestyles. So there will eventually be a food component. There is, will be a clothing vintage component in small ways and not right away. It will encompass the many categories for the home lifestyle, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And for, right. so for the summer, we, we were selling and we're moving through it and seeing how it goes. And it's we sold more here. And I didn't even put it on Instagram because I knew I wasn't ready for that kind right. of thing. But we sold more here in one day open on the weekend, a Memorial Day weekend, than we had in Greenwich in the past three days. So wow. it seems like a good that's sign. A, and, that's a good um, sign. More to come on that. But Instagram has been extremely useful and helpful. I think Instagram is great. But Instagram too, even I'm sure that you all can relate, has become yet another real thing to think about, a component to think about when you're running your business. And time consuming. And Mm -hmm. you've got to plan it. And I'm not a planner when it comes to that Instagram thing. I just want to do it when I want to do it. And so anyway, does that answer answer some of them? Now, Eric, you're all over Instagram. Have you found it helpful in terms of even sales and things? Yes and no. So (laughs) (laughs) Patrick is right. It takes time to really put it together and get a vision out there. We're a little bit different because our price point and the ordering right to the trade. So we're looking at people are coming in making a very practical decision with their right. designer, their decorator, their architect, and there's a lead time. So internet sales right. or Instagram sales are really impossible for us because there's always a lead time and no one wants to put down thousands of dollars right. through a digital right. component to wait for it. Right. But I would think in terms of brand building and oh, awareness. 100%. Of yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's a lot of fun to sort of get the message out there and, and put the brands together and you know, people do come in and say, oh, I saw it on Instagram. Or they'll message us and say, hey, can you send me that tear sheet? So 
we've launched a new website that is really, as I say, a designer's resource from a designer that involves QR codes and tear sheets and all this information specification that otherwise you would have to come in to get or you'd have to talk to us directly. But the new website has all of that uh, and it's over 16,000 images and SKUs from all the collections. So Yes, when I talk about time consuming, (laughs) that was a lot of work, a lot, a lot of work, but a cool new resource to sort of help us keep up with the retail mindset. But at the at the end of the day, knowing that we just don't sell that way. Right. But that's sort of the at least the vision or the way I say people don't buy from retail stores because they always love their furniture. It's comfortable. They buy it because they have a really beautiful magazine. And so they buy that lifestyle. And so that's really what we have to do from the trade perspective is put out imagery on our social media and our other components that look like a pretty catalog. So people want to dive into it. Right. And Meg, would you agree, since you, I mean, I would assume you would because you just opened your second shop in Palm Beach, but I do think that there's something about walking into a store that's very tactile, it makes you think about things that as opposed to seeing it on Instagram and ordering it or going online, and I'm a couple of stores and even in Manhattan, which we're sort of store deprived at the moment, Hudson Grace is just open in the West Village, there's a few more home stores. Do you think people miss them and realize that I do. just interacting with your phone isn't enough? I do. I think people are excited to come in and find it themselves. Mm-hmm. I had a client who actually went into my shop last week in Florida and she had never been into my new store and she went shopping in my store and I had shown her some of these things in presentation form and she had no interest. And then she walked into the store Mm. and she said, Oh, I have to have that console. I see it's on hold for someone else. I was like, it's on hold for you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Smart lady. Because I kept hoping. That is a great but story. I, I kept hoping she would come back around to it. But anyway, I think people sometimes, especially clients who have like a lot of decorators or whatever, have people out shopping for them. I think they personally, maybe they don't have time to shop or maybe they have a big important job or something. But I think they like finding it themselves. So it's kind of the right. perfect crime. If you have a store curated with all the things that you love and then your clients actually come in and want to enjoy those things too, it's kind of great that you've kind of pre-selected for them. Now, I know, as I was saying, retail is a lot of work. There's paperwork, there's shipping, there's installs, all of that. And yet you guys, either out of a vision or falling into it in your case, Eric, obviously have taken to it. And I know there are other designers out there who are contemplating this. And I think there's people who are like born shopkeepers. Like I interviewed Thomas O'Brien years ago, and he told me that basically at heart, he considers himself a shopkeeper. And of course, Arrow was a huge success and is a huge success. And now he has his thing out on Long Island. So what would be the one lesson that you would want to convey to somebody who's thinking of opening a store or showroom? We'll start with you, Eric, because I know showrooms are special, but what do you think they need to know about and keep in mind as they're thinking about launching a retail venture? Well, I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but I do think it's probably one <laughs> oh, of the we hope most, you do. <laughs> I know. I think it's probably one of the soundest pieces of advice that I was given by my cohorts. And they said to me, remember that you're never going to please everyone and everyone will not be your client. Good advice. And I think at the end of the day, we come from this idea that if I go to a restaurant, it has to be perfect. Therefore, I'm paying for it. It must be perfect. And I think we get into retail and we get that client who maybe not is in our model and think that. I can give you a thousand examples. One of them I just walked out of dealing with before I came to join you guys today. 
But if there's something wrong or there's something that goes minuscule, they just jump to conclusions and they automatically hate you. That's typically not our client. That's not the client who understands that we're here to work with them. We're here to improve their lives. We're here to give them the best quality that they're looking for in product. And that's also what our manufacturers are looking for in our partnerships. Because right, as you've all said, what we put in our showrooms and our stores are an extension of what we love. And so I learned very early on, while I thought it was a bit crude when I first admittedly heard it, I've learned that that's really been a pretty sound advice moving forward in saying that. Right. I mean, everybody's always told the customer is never wrong, but believe me, I know customers are wrong all the time. <laughs> you, um, you would be surprised. <laughs> you would be surprised the fibs we catch people in when we get photos or, you know, I had, I run a tangent to say, I had a, a woman was saying that our pillows broke down for one of our manufacturers. And I said to her, listen, we stand by our work. Absolutely. If there's a problem, send me photos. And she sends me a photo of the dog sleeping on the middle cushion in the center. And so it was starting to V and bow and the cushion was falling mm-hmm. apart. And I said to her, well, there's your answer. If the, <laughs> if the dog is sleeping and mind you, this wasn't a chihuahua. This was, you know, right. a pretty heavy, medium sized dog. <laughs> Nothing is going to stand up to that. So it's, it's incredible how the customer is not That's always funny. right. We just try to bring them to a moment of, now let's work this out to move forward. (laughs) I think the customer was always right when the world was a more polite, genteel. Yes, exactly. place. Exactly. (laughs) Meg, what would be your advice? Yes, I I would say start with what you can handle. Like I, I started my shop. I sort of, like you, Patrick, I felt like I did what I could afford. I found a little shop in town. I could afford the rent. I saw it as an extension of my office. I moved out of the city, planted myself there with my new wallpaper company and tried to figure out what to do with it. And I think it's been a building block. And I think sometimes I think the best businesses are building blocks where you you just keep layering in components that are successful. And then you weed away the things that are less successful and you just keep going with that. And I think if you can start something smallish that you can completely manage and do really well. And then you can keep adding to it or you can get the shop next door, which is what I did. And you could layer in things that you discover over the years. I think it's a good formula. I think so too, Meg. I totally agree with you. And I think that, you know, I tell people all the time who are clients of mine or who come into the shop, I'm obviously still learning. I'm not 80 years old yet. And I haven't experienced the whole world and I haven't moved through all of it, et cetera. But you I mean, that's the wonderful part about it. That's the joy and gift of it, the discovery and the learning. And the if you're fortunate enough to travel and experience new places and you're in the business that we're all in and to bring it back then to an audience that are getting there or don't know who to find or don't have the time. That's what makes it feel really like you are doing something that's more than just making a room look beautiful or et cetera. That could seemingly be perceived as superficial or artificial. It really does have an impact. And I also think that a blessing to have both the design business and the retail or the showroom and to work with families where you can see over time the change that you have brought into and your team of people have brought to their day in and day out is like the best feeling, especially over the past number of years through really a lot of heartache and a lot of challenge and home it's been said a million times over the past year, it's the most important thing we all have sort right. of in common to whatever extent that is. So right. I agree with you, Meg, and long-winded, but it's we're, I think we're all learning and we're all shifting and changing, and there you go. 
All right, I'd like to ask you each about a heartbreak. Has there ever been anything that you bought or ordered for your showroom, your shop, something that you loved and that nobody responded to? Has that ever happened? Something, a real disappointment. And that maybe you ended up buying it yourself, yes. for <laughs> or giving to a client. <laughs> That's where I was going with that. I try to only buy things that I would want in my house, to be honest with you. I think it's a good rule of thumb. So I do still have this one Johnson console that I cannot believe no one has bought. And it's, it's still in my shop. I moved it to Florida. I thought it's perfect for Palm Beach. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> so I don't know. It'll, it'll ultimately come home with me probably. Okay. And what about you, Patrick? Oh, it happens all the time. <laughs> um, especially with, you know, the shop is comprised of brands as well for fabric right. and an incredible line of hardware that Van Gregory and Norton, that people come to specifically for other designers in the area, come for the Jennifer Shorto, Caitlin McCauley, et cetera. But the pieces that I pick up along the way that I think are, oh, that's fabulous, that chair, and I'm going to paint it and redo it and put money into it. And then it sits there and it's like you dress up your child. Like, I hope you have, I hope everybody likes them. <laughs> <laughs> and then they don't I get invited to the party. Well, go do yeah, go win whatever the game. It's like, I feel <laughs> like about children, like I do about my furniture pieces. And when they sit, they sit there, they can sit there for a year and a half or two years. For instance, yesterday, this weekend, we excitedly sold the iron formerly from a law firm or a business of some kind in Maine, supposedly. And we just sold it finally yesterday. That was such a good feeling. And I hoisted the cast iron eagle into the back of the car. And that was a great moment. But you feel like, okay, I'm not crazy. Someone likes it. <laughs> I had to think through because a lot of it, the manufacturers sort of have input. So I don't always make a, you know, I had the final decision, but I don't necessarily have right. the decision in the process. So we bring in accessories and, and whatnot to support the vision. And I'm thinking about there's this hand carved cod that I picked up down at an antique store. And I thought, New England, it's fish. Like, who is going to yeah. not want to buy this fish? <laughs> it's, it right. should have been an ace in the hole. And that thing has sat there for now three <laughs> years. And even as a joke, I marked it down to 40 bucks to see, and no one still would take it. So it's <laughs> it's become this laughing stock that I can't get rid of this beautiful. And I mean, I think it's lovely. I just don't have room in my house for this it's, I think it's a six, well, maybe it's the size. It's, I don't know, 60 inches of a cod. I mean, it's a pretty significant well, fish. Send me a picture. You, send me a picture, the history Eric. of Boston, so you would well, think. Well, right. So I would think it'd be perfect <laughs> on Nantucket. I mean, our the island, <laughs> our Maine. Our... Well, I think it's just that you designers are just ahead of the curve and the public has to catch up. And it could be, could be another 10 years before you get rid of that cod, though. Probably so. <laughs> <laughs> Cod and eagles and animals. In yeah, particular. exactly. Yeah. It's so funny. People have such well, an aversion. I, you know, mm -hmm. I know. You never know what they're going to turn away from. The aversion thing, learning people's aversions. You know, hysterical. people, fish prints, you know, they love those. They love, I guess right. they actually maybe a sculptural fish is just wait a little it too was, much. It there, went too far. You know. Right. Well, I can't thank you all enough. This has been so enlightening and so much fun. And I think our listeners are really going to respond to all the information in this thing. And I want to thank my wonderful guests, Meg Braff, Patrick Millet, and Eric Haydell. And thank you all for listening to the Cherish Podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish 
which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time.